Okay, our last, our last talk before the poetry begins. Um, speaking on Isabel Galdi, um, off the top of my head, Queen of the Witches in Scotland, kind of. Meet, meet the King of the Folklore Academics. Um, <laughs> uh, history Academics, actually. John Callow. Thank you very much. Oh. Thank you. I don't know how to follow up that intro now. Um, I'm not going to give you PowerPoints because part of the thing I'm going to talk to you about today is the limits of what we can know, the limits of evidence, how we play around with figures from the past, how we project, project our own ideas, our own cultural stereotypes, our own wish fulfillments upon the dead, and uh, how things are invented. What can we know? What can't we know? And... Um, why, very often, it's not actually a problem. Beginnings of fragile times, they're exciting and often incredibly creative. And my engagement, I guess, with Isabel Gaudi began about 17 years ago, when I was doing a lot of work for the new Dictionary of National Biography, uh, writing lots of individual biographies of 17th century figures. Most of them, it has to be said, were Scots Presbyterian clergy, who were not the most excitable ones, you know? There was one, and you got these marvellous forms through where you had to, you know, um, account for the manner of their death. So I can remember one who'd been chopped up into lots of different pieces in the Irish Rebellion of 1641, and when it said place and, you know, manner of death, I had fun filling that one in. Um, but Isabel Gowdy came along to me. You know, she was dropped on the desk in one of these, you know, rather, rather sort of civil service type forms. And you had a brief. And of course, with all of them, they had a title. You know, it's fairly easy if you're a, you know, if you're a covenanter divine, if you're a minister of the cloth, if you're a soldier, you know, one of those things, even a bootmaker, it's fairly clear what you do. Isabel Gowdy's one just said, which? <laughs> now, that's debatable in itself for reasons I'm going to explain. But you can see from the start how we fit people into neat little boxes, neat little boxes of evidence that sum up their lives. It can be really problematic. And a moment or two is very often enough to define a life. How many times do we see in popular journalism there's one particular phrase that sticks to an individual? Now, about how many of us in every couple of days in our existence, could it be said that we're angry, or kind, or generous, or avaricious, lustful, or chaste? They're all features of humanity. I bet there's not one person in this room who hasn't been through all that range, probably in the last week or so. But think how many times one little snapshot is used to define somebody's vision their, their gifts, their failures, all of those kinds of things, and they hang like a millstone around these people's necks. Well, Isabel Gowdy was born, lived, kept house, and worked the fields at Old Dern for the majority of her life without ever exercising a single comment. She went unnoticed, causing so much of a ripple to trouble the keepers of official records, and she'd doubtless have gone to her grave underneath the sodden highland earth had she not walked into a courtroom, seemingly of her own volition, 
I don't get the feeling her, her hand was forced. I think she went in under her own steam in the spring of 1662 in order to confess to the crime of witchcraft. Struggling with her own conscience and overwhelming feelings of, feelings of guilt, feelings that she was going to be damned, this is the thing that's eating at her, and that she'd harmed a close neighbour through her practice of... Uh, um, malefic witchcraft, harmful witchcraft. She confesses that she'd been overlong in the service of witchcraft. And between the 13th and 17th of May, she goes on to give four separate confessions to local magistrates at O'Dern. Okay? And it's from these very different and at times conflicting, at times difficult statements that we get our only glimpses of Isabel Gowdy. Almost everything else, and I'm qualifying it, almost everything else is complete conjecture. Either side of those dates, we know nothing about a movement or a biography. Your guess is as good as mine. Okay? It can be frustrating or it can be enlivening. We know from the court records that she was married to John Gilbert, a cotter, so they didn't have much money. She was probably approaching middle age. She was still sexually active at the times of her, at time of her trial, and she lived in a farmstead at Loch Loy on the outskirts of the village with her husband. Everything else we don't know about her biography. We don't know if she had kids. We don't know, you know, what she thought, etc., etc., etc. This leads us on to my first observation about sometimes how we misread the past. One of my favourite bits of autobiographical literature, okay, it's, it's, it's sieved through the lens of a slightly later editor, but comes from the real D'Artagnan, because there was a real D'Artagnan. Has anybody ever heard of him? A guy called Charles de Batz, and it is the greatest, I think it's the greatest opening line of anybody's autobiography. And if you think about how autobiographies are fashioned today, you know, you go to the Waterstones, you know, bookshops like that, and you read the stuff about, you know, whoever's been on, you know, X Factor or Celebrity whatever or the, the prevalent pop star of the day, and it's all rooted in their childhood. You know, my drug addiction, my bad behaviour, all these things I've triumphed over come from a childhood trauma. Not a bit of it in the 17th century. So when we get to Charles de Batz, the future Comte d'Artagnan, he begins the account of his life with the words... Before the age of 21, and I entered the service of His Majesty the Christian King Louis XIII as a member of his Musketeers of the Guard, there is absolutely nothing of any value to interest anybody <laughs> in my life. So we meet the problems we have in the present, forcing everything into, let's face it, our Freudian idea of psychology and people's self-definition i.e. a professional soldier's idea that before he took up the sword for his king, he was nothing, and that's, you know, his, his, late, his military career is what you ought to be interested in. Now, the problem we've got with Isabel Gowdy is that her testimony is not allowed to be her own testimony for long through these four different confessions. She, I'm, I'm sure she goes into court to unburden herself, as I've said, of her guilt and her worries and to give an account of the things that she thinks bothers her and worries her and all the rest. It was her particular tragedy, and our tragedy, I'd suggest, in the presence, that the authorities had their own and very clear preconceptions about the sort of information she was going to tell them and what did and didn't, did not equate to the practice of witchcraft 
as they saw it. So they weren't prepared to allow her the freedom to present her evidence in the manner that she'd obviously carefully planned. Indeed, over the course of of the four separate confessions, um, and possibly interrogations, again, we don't know if she was roughed up over those dates between the different interrogations, how she was coerced, what happened to her. Yeah, your guess is as good as mine, but I think certainly there was sizable shaping of the confessions, whether or not it was done through torture or suggestion is a different matter, but it certainly happened. So the judges were concerned to make sure that the list of her crimes and the names of her accomplices were constantly reworked, refined and clarified in order to fit with a more conventional stereotype familiar to them through standard witchcraft texts, which, of course, in the Scottish context, you know, you've got the demonology of King James VI and I, all the stuff that had slewed in from him through the court of Denmark and from Germany, you know, fairly advanced witch theory. So, as a result, her initial desire to tell her, uh, uh, to tell her examiners about her adventures in the fairy realm was subsumed in a far darker narrative of demonic pacts and murderous vengeance against anybody who'd wronged her. And it's one of the most frustrating things. Her narrative breaks off in the course of the first confession. She's talking about, you know, the hollow hills splitting asunder, the court of the king and queen of fairy, the marvellous fairy food she ate, the elf bulls frolicking on the hillsides. Now, what an elf bull or an elf cow looks like I have no idea, but they clearly impressed her and she wanted to tell the courts. Unfortunately, the guy who was recording her testimony wasn't terribly interested. So if you look at the page, it's scratched through with etc., 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 and and more of the same. So anybody, I guess, like the majority of people in this room, who would like to get to an examination of the workings of this woman's mind, Folklore, fairy lore in the highlands of Scotland, what she actually meant about, the details of the King or Queen of Fairy, you're not going to get it, because the court didn't want it and was patently bored by it. So, very quickly, we get to a more formulaic account. She describes how in 1647 she'd met the devil while out walking and had entered into a covenant with him, in a parody, of course, of the Old Testament accords between the Jewish people and Yahweh. Um, and the same night, she claims, she'd gone with him to the Kirk at Old Dern, where she denied her Christian baptism before the devil, received his mark upon her shoulder, the witch mark, and while she was there, she was held fast by her neighbours. And the devil had supposedly sucked blood from out of her mark and sprinkled it upon her head, declaring that, I baptise thee, Janet, in my own name. Okay, so a parody of Christian rites. In the course of the second testimony, she goes a lot further. And, you know, she tells the court that then she gives the devil exhaustive use of her own body. In the third confession, she gets more lurid still and goes into the details of her sexual relationship with the devil, explaining to the court how she'd uh, cuckolded her husband, deluded him, creeping out of bed at night to meet with the devil, leaving a, a, you know, a besom or a broom behind her, which then magically doubled for her image. So the husband thinks, you know, she's lying beside him all the way through the night while she revels, and she does revel in the confession, in the devil's sexual prowess. So we hear, for instance, about the enormous size and blackness of his member 
Um, how his semen dripped cold onto her, searing and thrilling her, while he rode her like a stallion among the mares. So she's, she's channeling something, which again, the court, the court isn't scratching through that bit, I'm telling you. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> um, anyhow, equipped with a new name, back with a strong network of covens, Gaudi then supposedly begins her own reign of terror on the local community. Uh, in hock with her familiar, the reed or the red reaver. She claims to have ruined crops and soured milk, transformed herself at will into jackdaws and hares and crows. One of the things about Isabel Gaudi, and I, I don't have time to go into it all, is how much her confessions have sparked the artistic imagination. Um, so everybody from rock bands to folk rock bands to Maddie Pryor's great song about the, the fabled hair to James McMillan's classical opera seems via the sensational Alex Harvey band in the 1970s has referenced Isabel Gaudi and taken her as a symbol and a point of imaginative de departure. So she changes into all these different shapes and then she does a bit of uh, breaking and entry, going into the houses of the gentry to eat and drink, as she says, of the best from off their tables. So far, so good. But the, the procuring and the consumption of rich foods is the constant theme of all of her confessions and seems to be one of the greatest benefits that she felt she's got out of her pact with the devil, okay? She eats, she drinks, she's not hungry. This seems to be part of it. If you remember at the beginning, the thing in the fairy hills is that she tastes fairy food. And there's a lot of it about when the, you know, when the, when the Dunny Hills open. So it's demonology, not folklore, that concerns and motivated the authorities. The tales of the elf bulls, the feasting on equal terms with the king and queen are all struck through from the record. And what matters to them is her murderous record. The people she kills, the infants she digs up from kirkyards, the flints, she seems, when she's flying through the air, there's this idea that she flicks them with her fingers, like probably Neolithic, um, she calls them elf arrows, probably Neolithic flint nappings that she uses as projectiles, and they kill various people. Um, in true sort of, you know, whatever, whatever you could say, sort of reassuring fashion, the guy she can't kill is the local clergyman, who seems to be the one person she despises. So God is protecting him. Whether that's something that's imposed through the confessions, you don't know. But the devil seems very unable to actually bring him down, even though he brings down all others. So she does all of this. Now, of course, there's the denouement. It's conceivable that this powerful sense of guilt is what you know, motivates Gaudi through everything, that she's prepared to say whatever it is the authorities want, you know, like the Stockholm Syndrome, to please people, to get, um, to get what she wants, um, you know, some form of restitution. And just before sentence is passed, she says that she desires for all these crimes, that she should be riven upon iron harrows or worse if it could be devised. So this is, this is a lot of self-hate, which is important to remember for what I'm going to say to you in a minute. The traditional view from Pitt Cairn in his uh, collection of Scottish trials to Sir Walter Scott, who popularised a tale in the 19th century, to, of course, James Macmillan and his opera, 
is this idea that Gaudi was burned at the stake for the crime of witchcraft together with her accomplice, Janet Broadhead. But there's no record of her individual fate, okay? We assume that witches burn, even though, as you all know, that you know, no witch was ever hanged in England. Witches burn. This is what happens to them. Well, the papers certainly were forwarded to the Scottish Privy Council in the summer of 1662, and Sir Hugh uh, Campbell of Calder, together with eight others, top gentry, or, you know, top arist aristocracy, all of them, sit to make sense of the case on appeal in the July. Now, it's a fascinating document, I think, that they returned to Old Durn. And it's got 15 clauses. And it starts out, and I'm going to paraphrase, because I haven't got the time to read from it, but I'm going to paraphrase for you basically how it runs. And the first side is this great pat on the back to the authorities at Old Durn. You have done brilliantly. You have done everything we could ever wish that the local justices of the peace and authorities could have done by running in a suspected witch. Okay, well done you. The Privy Council is really pleased. You've convicted her. Great, we agree with that conviction. It's the right thing to do. You know, she's quite clearly guilty of what she um, says. However, and there are 15 separate articles underneath, have you considered and in the have you considered, I think you begin to get the germs of an Enlightenment vision. An Enlightenment vision that obviously is disbelieving about the efficacy of magic because it goes through everything. Is there any evidence that she was depressed? Well, she doesn't seem terribly happy, you know? Is there any evidence that she was deluded in these things she claimed to have seen? Well, you know, the court itself had struck out the reference to elf bulls and said she was deluded on that area, so there's maybe something there. Um, is she suicidal? Does she desire to die? Well, we're coming back to the thing about, well, I'd like to be put upon iron harrows or worse if it could be devised, you know? So, you know, and then another one of the killers, has she been coerced? Has she in any way been tortured or deprived of her sleep? And it goes on and on. If any one of these 15 points in any way raises your scruples or your problems with you, then we think, even though you've done the right thing in convicting her, you ought to show leniency and let her off. So to my mind, any local justice getting that letter from Charles II's Privy Council in Scotland would probably have let her go. That's my view anyway. Doesn't fit with a lot of the stuff that's been written doesn't even appear in a lot of the very large accounts of her life that have turned out recently, but that's my view of it. In the last few minutes, I'm going to go on to just why she's so significant. Why she's so significant as a cultural icon, why she's so significant for the modern pagan movement, why she roots the idea of the coven in the popular consciousness. And I'll do it at a lick, because we haven't got too much time. There's no accompanying pamphlet literature, okay? It's another negative. I think probably if her and her mate Janet had been burned somewhere in Scotland, somebody, a bit like with the Biddeford witches 20 years later, would have written a pamphlet to cash in on it. Somebody, I suspect, would have noticed. Because there isn't that pamphlet literature, because they're not illustrated, hence no overheads, um, they're quickly forgotten. Until that is, Robert Pitcairn 
rediscovered it when he was working through the archives of the Edinburgh High Court and published a version of Isabel's testimony, which I've just reworked for you, in his account of the criminal, criminal trials in 1833. Pitcairn is influenced and inspired by Walter Scott and sent copies of the more traumatic cases of witchcraft to Scott, the, the, you know, the romantic novelist par excellence, for use in his own work. Scott had been toying with the idea of doing some, you know, some writings on witchcraft for a very, very long time. But it's his connection with Pitcairn that makes all this possible, because he's generous with his notes. The resulting book, Demonology and Witchcraft, was written very quickly during the summer months of 1830 and published together with a series of really great illustrative uh, plates by George Cruikshank in Time for Christmas. Cruikshank, of course, illustrated Dickens. Isabel Gowdy, at this point, is basically a silly old countrywoman in a mob cap, and the devil is a, is a source of fun. You know, he's a bogey. Not for long. Um, it's, a, it's a book that is designed to make money. Scott's having trouble funding Abbotsford, his great Scottish baronial hall, and he needs a quick return. And as lots of people have done before, he turns to witches to make him money fast. Nothing's, nothing's new under the sun, is it, with publishers and writers and things like that. So Scott is quick to realize this, and he, in a sense, sets down the, the confessions of Isabel Gowdy and makes them sort of general. And it's Scott who he, he describes Gowdy and her friends as being the very archetypes, you know, putting the, putting the cart before the horse, of, uh, you know, Macbeth's three weird sisters. So as a romantic novelist, the interpreter of Scotland's core national myths, he roots this idea of the coven in his letters on demonology and witchcraft, the coven which had no basis in English trials. The coven as Scott suggests, with its 12 members and a maiden, and this becomes rooted in the popular consciousness. Okay? Gowdy now becomes the maiden of the coven, the beauty, not the old deer in the mob cap, but the central one. And this becomes central to John William Brodie Innes, an, an Edinburgh barrister, mate of Bram Stoker's, uh, initiator of the Temple of the Golden Dawn, who in 1915 comes along with his novel, The Devil's Mistress. Isabel is now recast as a beautiful young girl from a moneyed family, fallen on hard times, married off to this dreadful cotter who's a terrible Protestant who slept with his boots on, whereas she is this rather gorgeous flame-haired Roman Catholic who has to keep her faith sacred, you know, sacred. The story ends up becoming a very religious story at the end. You know, Jesus appears and the young girl's soul is saved amid Catholic homily. But certain ideas about Isabel are rooted. Probably the most significant is the association between the coven and a different type of witchcraft, which is Dianic, which is classical in nature. Brodie Innes injects for the first time. So now, when Isabel is there in the kirkyard at Old Dern, she's performing her magical rite naked at full moon, attempting to draw down the moon and evoking the goddess Hecate. So it's like any solipsism. Idea builds on idea, and we fill in the gaps that work for us. That is the idea of Isabel that has persisted, has dominated, I think, until, until recent times. It's there when Dennis Wheatley did um, a collection of occult stories in sort of, you know, cheap, cheaply available paperbacks in the, in the 1970s. His foreword to Brodie Innes 
kind of, he, he sort of, he cribs Brodie Innes' plot line and writes it as though it's there in Pitcairn, so it's a historical fact that Isabel Gaudi was this beautiful young maiden and a Roman Catholic and had red hair. Well, none of those things, I'm afraid, you can substantiate. They might have been true, but then lots of other things might have been true. Your guess is as good as mine, and I'm going to return to that point at the very end. Now, moving forward, and I'll try and wrap this up in five minutes or so, because there's a lot to try and cram in. The stories of night flight, of course, the stories of covens, appeal to Margaret Murray, who tries to systematise and uses the confessions as she was wont to do in a fairly selective manner. So she downplays the kind of off-the-wall stuff, the night flights, the shape-changing, all that, and she overemphasizes, I think, the system of the coven. You know, this one thing that might have happened in Old, old Dern Kirkyard becomes something that suddenly, under Margaret Murray's particular spell, becomes the modus operandi of every witch across the British Isles. You know, if you've read Robert Neal's wonderful novels, and I think they're, they're great, his, his three major witchcraft novels, then Witchfire at Lammas, What Do You Find in the Enlightenment, in Lancashire in 1715 at the time of the Jacobite Rising, but a coven of young women who look remarkably like 1960s pagans performing magic in exactly this way, you know? One thing feeds upon another and upon another and upon another. I'll give you one quick view of this. Murray posits a ritual calendar, okay? They had, they had joyous assemblies. It's a ritual calendar, and she says that the witches met on Candlemas, okay? This is what Gaudi says in her confession. Gaudi does not say the witches met at Candlemas. She says, about the time of Candlemas, she went into the kirkyard at Old Dern. And I think between those two things, there's an enormous gulf. You know, we can't say a lot for certain, but the evidence does not support the fact she said, on Candlemas night, we all did this and we all practiced magic our way. Won't go on for Margaret Murray anymore. She had a, you know, she had a great creative imagination. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna literally kick the corpse, but that's where we are. Similarly, with the, with the, um, with the modern rave movement, you can see the shamanic power of Gaudi's confessions coming again to the fore. The trance-like state could talk about it for hours. Suffice to say, in the couple of minutes remaining, that you know. There's a long way between the Lake Innery and uh, Highland Scotland. And if shamanic practice had been going on as part of an underground religion, I think there might be a bit more evidence for it than, than what we have. To wrap up, though, I think Gaudi is significant in a number of ways. She gives that thing that I think is important for people interested, you know, in, in the Fortean society, in anything, any esoteric movement in modern witchcraft. She gives that wonderful thing, she gives the freedom to dream. Because in between those gaps in the court records, we have to be mindful of, you know, historical veracity. But also, your guess is as good as mine. You know, what she wanted to say at that courtroom, I can give you one interpretation, but I'm not saying my interpretation is the only one. There's no way, truth or light. And that's what makes history such an engaging, fun subject. So what am I going to say to wrap up? It's probably safe to conclude that Gaudi's case was the product of conflicting cosmologies. 
on the fault line between the Gaelic-speaking Highland culture on one hand and an English-speaking Lowland culture harnessing the power of a centralising Scottish state on the other. This is the time when the centre is looking at the provinces, although in Gowdy's case the centre is a damn sight more rational and, and fair-minded than the provinces. Without the evidence of an execution, I think Isabel Gowdy would have left the courtroom for one last time and returned to the obscurity that she had known before. Okay? In this light, rather than speaking for a prior folk culture defined by witchcraft or shamanism, depending upon your, your, own, um, you know, your own predilection, Gowdy's imaginings can be more accurately view, reviewed as articulating the concerns and frustrations of a poor and frequently hungry woman, somebody who never knew a full stomach, but who wished for plentiful meat to feast upon and a level of social and sexual freedom that was all too lacking in the hierarchical and Kirk-dominated government of Scotland in the mid-17th century. But it's the power of her testimony, the power of her imagination, and the ability to give form and rhyme to folk charms that elevated her, however briefly, from the anonymous mass and permitted her a limited degree of expression which bears constant reinterpretation through music, song, and art, and the ability to truly entrance, not through some arcane magic, but through the beauty of language and the power of the written word. And I think tonight, that's what we ought to celebrate about Isabel Gowdy. Thank you.